You're listening to Politics Weekly. To uh, be big underdogs uh, in the race uh, for the uh, the presidency. One of them is uh, joining me today. We can survive all those systems. What's going to happen if you legalize it completely? Politics Weekly is a podcast on politics, news, and principles. After an overwhelming win in Nevada, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has officially solidified his status as the front-runner in the 2020 Democratic primary field. Now, the pressure is on for former Vice President Joe Biden, the man who is once considered the front-runner, who is hoping now to gain momentum here with a win on Saturday. Biden seems to be doing just that, as he's gained the endorsement of popular South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn. Biden also seems to have gained momentum in the polls, as he's coming in as high as 40% in some national polling, with Sanders coming in a distant second in South Carolina. Businessman Tom Steyer, who's largely been considered an underdog in the race, could get his big break in the Palmetto State, as he's been polling as high as 15% in some polls. Biden believes a win here could could be the push he needs to get back on top in the polls. In spite of a lead in South Carolina, however, Sanders still leads Biden by double digits nationally, though Super Tuesday could be the ultimate test for the candidates, as it could change the state of the race. If you're hoping to hear about the Republican primary, however, don't hold your breath. Party officials canceled their primary here. What happened in his conviction? His conviction still stands. The difference is that he just served a lesser time. Right? And people who advocate for criminal justice reform, this would be pretty much good in the aspect of general, you know, in general, general uh, using this kind of power for all people, black minorities, and whoever people who are imprisoned to cut their sentences short for crimes they committed. Right? The outrage now is because of who the person is. Right? Back in the day, when uh, back in 2008, our president Barack Obama, Senator Barack Obama. One denomination, he was pretty much bidding off his seat, right? He was bidding off who can replace Senator Barack Obama, and he was using oh, that, right? right? So he's been convicted of that. He has been in prison for that. He hasn't been pardoned. So pretty much, you're still guilty for what you did. You just did a lesser sentence. Pretty much, is it's like when you when you uh, have a debt and you settle it, pretty much, right? If we can use that in, in simple terms, right? You owe $10,000, you'll settle it for 5000 Okay. Pretty much that's what happened. So that's the commutation aspect of it. So him commuting a sentence, that could be arbitration. You could be like, that's not fair. He should have served it. I don't care. The thing is that he still committed it. He still did the time, and he still found him. His record still stands. His uh, record in the past, he still has to go through the whole parole system. He still has to go through, you know, all the, the legal requirements when someone leaves prison, right? When someone completes their sentence. He still has to register. He still has to go through his parole. He still has to go through all that, right? And in regards to if he got caught in, he wouldn't need to go through all that. It would just be like, it never happened. But commutation, pretty much, he's serving this time. And um, why him? That's a good question. A lot of people say because he was on, on um, The Apprentice. 
she was part of the show. Some people say that, oh, it's just Trump's way of pardoning criminals and corrupt people in America. You know, that's what we should impeach him. They can use it that way and, and touch it that way. But in terms of um, what he did, President Trump says that his, his wife, um, his, uh, former Governor Rob's wife, has been really advocating for his early release, has been trying to do everything he can to get her husband out of prison uh, quicker or receive a pardon, pretty much. But instead, he got a shorter sentence. He pretty much said, you're done. Uh, Trump pretty much said, you serve your sentence. This much time has been fine for us. So in terms of optics, in terms of uh, the way it looked, it looks kind of shady. And that's because the media hasn't defined the difference between commutation and pardon, right? So the media could focus on, well, he just made him serve a... He just... Whatever, sir. He completed his service by time, sir. Right? He, 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 that doesn't mean that he got rid of his sentence. Um, in terms of... Um, we say president has the power to do that whether you agree with them or not it's presidential powers the optics would be you know it's kind of uh, where it's like it depends on where you stand it could be good it could be bad but optically right now the way the media is portraying it and the way it's going through uh, uh the mainstream media it looks like this is trump training all these corrupt people because he is corrupt too but the thing the media needs to do is define the differences and pretty much mr former governor rod is guilty he was found guilty his conviction still stands. His conviction still on record. He just got released out of prison early. Uh, all right. Uh, let's move on then. So, um, uh, Roger Stone was recently uh, sentenced uh, to three years uh, in prison. Uh, Trump has protested uh, the idea that uh, Stone would get this time in prison. Uh, he said that he's considering using the presidential pardon power, uh, to help Stone. Um, uh, Bill Barr, uh, attacked Trump saying that he thinks that it is, uh, wrong that, uh, or, or that it's making it harder for Trump to do his job. What are your thoughts on this? Twitter, 
right? He's trying to communicate to the voting Americans, to the voters, to the public, on his stance and his thoughts on things, right? Without the news cycle and the mainstream media and all that filtering it, right? He wants to directly communicate. And there's a book on it. It's called, you know, Going Local, which analyzes how presidents have been trying to reach directly to the voters with um, around the mainstream media and the news cycles. But that's historically. Like Eddie said, it has been hard for the Attorney General to do his job, not because um, he disagrees with Trump's uh, what he says or anything. It's because he wants to effectively do his job, and if Trump has to give an opinion to everything that's going on, it, it hinders him because now he has to reevaluate what's the next move. He has to reevaluate, okay, now is my legal justification for doing this, or what is my legal outlet for doing this, right? So if Trump gives a, an opinion on everything, and in this case, Roger Stone, right, he can say, I disagree with the sentence. Anyone can say that, right? If you have a friend who goes to prison, or you know someone who goes to prison, you can say, I disagree with the sentence. I disagree that that person needs to go this long in prison or whatever. You can do that. You have to, to do that. The thing that the problem here with the president and the Justice Department with uh, Attorney General Barr is that he has to be careful on his steps because then the media and the news cycles are going to say that he is doing what Trump does. He is corrupt as Trump. He is doing Trump's dirty bidding, right? Whether it's true or not, that could be up to legal interpretation. And there's been legal standing that, you know, the legal standing. The thing is that it makes him hard because now he has to, because he beats the president. He has to beat the president. He is technically a cabinet member of the presidency, right? So if people are mad about that, then they have to establish the DOJ, the DOJ as an independence, right? But it's under the, the executive. The DOJ is under the executive. So whether you like it or not, the DOJ has to report to the president of the United States. That's the way it's made up. That's the way that the, the bureaucracy has been established, right? So if Donald Trump says, I don't want this person to go to prison, it's kind of going against your own boss for the UK, right? So it's hard for him because, like, well, this, my boss is telling me this, but this is what I need to do. That can provide a conflict of interest. Now, does Barr have to listen and, and pay attention to every tweet Trump says? No. If Trump says, I write the sentence, he doesn't have to listen to it. Right, but he also has to he he also has to realize that he's his job security is on the line as well. In terms of Roger Stone, the 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 the, the DOJ was trying to give him up to eight four to eight years in prison, eight years in prison for the crimes he convicted. President Trump thinks that's excessive. So there's an internal fight in the DOJ that we are still trying to figure out what happened. We're trying to figure out what's going on because. Just like any attorney general, just like any uh, uh, DA, you know, to talk about what goes on internally in terms of sentencing and uh, strategy is really hard, right? Because you don't want to mess up your own uh, case against, right? Um, of course, they they resigned out of protest because they, they, they he might get a lower sentence and so on and so forth. And now you have Trump people. Donald Trump hasn't really said he might pardon him. He, he just says, let's see what happens. His tweets can be interpreted as I'm going to pardon him, but he hasn't said I'm going to pardon uh, 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 Stone. He just said he doesn't agree with the time, right, with the sentencing time frame. So um, it's kind of like two things, just to sum it up. 
president is the boss of the attorney general. He is the attorney general's boss, right? And and having the independence between the attorney general and the president is really hard. It's under the executive branch. Does Barr have to listen to everything Trump says? No. He can go ahead and do what is legally required of the Justice Department, right? It does complicate things for Barr because now he has to be more careful and walk in more on a thinner line every time Trump tweets out something in regards to the DOJ, right? Because he might be doing legally responsible things and be doing things uh, that is within the purview and legal interpretation. He could be doing his job right, but because now you have the, the, the Trump effect of it and the Trump effect by being like, oh, no one likes Trump. Everyone thinks Trump is a crook. Everything's Trump is a liar. If he's a thief, he's corrupt. So now you think that you can easily try to assume that the Attorney General is doing corrupt things, right? So it makes it difficult because now he has he, he's already walking on eggshells, right? Now he has to walk on more eggshells and he's high enough. In terms of Roger Stone, his sentencing, the recommendation and all that stuff, Roger Stone's, uh, you know, he has his, he has the right to defense, just like any person in America, and the right to defense attorney. Um, pretty much is the, the time frame of his sentence it's being debated right now between Trump and the DOJ and within the DOJ, right? So they're debating on how much time should he serve in prison. Um, whether or not President Trump is going to pardon him, we don't know. You know, this president is unexpected. He might decide to do it. He might decide not to do it. He might even commutate his sentence, right? Not so much part of it, but you might commutate. You know, we'll give him some time and then we'll let him serve some time and then we'll let him out of prison early. So that's what we, that's our analysis of Roger Stone. If the jury found him guilty, jury found him guilty. He can appeal if he wants to. He can go ahead and appeal it. He has the right to appeal it. So the jury found him guilty. You know, what can you do with the verdict, right? Um, in terms of sentencing, that's a debate whether he should be serving 10 years or three years. That's what's a debate in terms of what is considered a applicable punishment for the crimes he has uh, been convicted of. All right. Well, <clears throat> let's move on to the next story. So controversial right-wing uh, uh, commentator Nicholas Fuentes has been terminated from YouTube. Uh, uh, Fuentes has been uh, criticized uh, for what many call white supremacy. Uh, however, others are arguing that his uh, uh, that he's being uh, kicked off uh, as a form of trying to censor uh, opinions. Um, so getting mixed reactions. Uh, ben Shapiro, uh, conservative commentator, is saying uh, on Twitter that uh, if uh if the um if the intent was to remove Nicholas Fuentes for what Shapiro calls Fuentes's quote garbage ideas uh then and not for him quote unquote threatening people uh and using ethnic slurs then it is uh the wrong decision uh what are your thoughts on Fuentes being removed from YouTube Um, yeah, can, can you repeat uh, Shapiro's comment one more time? Uh, what, what did he say? So uh, uh, Shapiro said that if YouTube uh, was removing Fuentes for his for what Shapiro called Fuentes's quote garbage ideas and not uh, uh, threatening people uh, and uh, calling uh, and using ethnic slurs against people, then it was wrong. 
I would just have to agree overall. I tuned in to several of Nick Fuentes' um, YouTube uh, videos, YouTube live streams, and so forth when he had his show. I'm not a I'm not a big fan of what he stood for, but either way, he's allowed to do to do what what, what what he has to say. If he's not threatening anybody, then I believe you're you're eligible to say what you want to say and present it to your viewers. Um, uh, if YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, they're all really cracking down on anything right wing, really. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that Nick Fuentes really represents the conservative establishment because I, I'm of the opinion that he doesn't. However, it's, it's really a crackdown on just right wing or conservative talk, and and he just happens to be the next victim up in that. Um, but if there was no threats. Uh, towards and many of his racial slurs because he's he's he said them. I I I've seen it on his I've seen it on his show. He said them, um, and we all know the conflict between the corpers and and other things he he's, he's on the show and then his and how they go attack uh, uh one of the uh, Ben Shapiro uh, uh, when he goes to speak with appearances and also Turning Point USA. Starting point USA uh, events when they go attack them. I've seen those as well. You know, it talks about how Aryans and all this, and I, I get it. That's that's his thing. But at the end of the day, if you're not threatening anybody, you're not calling for the natural movement to overthrow the establishment and eliminate minorities and stuff like that. Then you should leave the guy alone. Because at the end of the day, rational people will think, okay, now this guy's maybe a little too extreme, and we don't want to listen to him, or maybe. Um, his views are off. Uh, we'll listen to him, but his views are off. Everybody can judge on their, on, their, on their own way. Ben Shapiro and myself are on the same page where we say we don't agree with Nick Fuentes. Nick Fuentes doesn't represent conservative ideology. Um, and other people can say, no, well, you're wrong. You really don't represent conservative ideology because of, his demo, of, of, the, of their views on demographic change and so forth. Because that's really Nick Fuentes' forte was the whole how... I mean, that's like the white people are being threatened by demographic change and so forth, and conservatives, conservatives don't take that into account. That's basically one of his main arguments. Yeah, that's fine and dandy. That's fine and dandy, but I think YouTube got this one wrong. Um, we'll see. We'll see if, you, if YouTube changes his mind, given what's going on. There's other people's accounts, like Candace Owens' account got shut down, and it was not her YouTube account, but her Instagrams and her Twitter accounts have been affected, and then they come back up. Um, if Nick Fuentes uh, is found that he really did not threaten anybody, then his YouTube account should be reactivated and uh, let him continue doing what he was doing. And people and people have the right to tune into his channel, uh, whether they believe it or not. That's up to them. Uh, all right. Take into account, um, just to add. Go ahead. Um, the idea, the ideology of censorship, right? The United States has been the beacon and the country of free speech and the freedom of the press and freedom to assemble. And those are pretty much our first two. You know, our first right is freedom of speech, right? Freedom of the press, freedom to say, right? Um, I know the court has interpreted a lot of the free speech to be curbed. It could be uh, not considered free speech that has uh, determined things that you're like you going to a building and you say fire and everyone's out, right? That has been considered not free speech and could be considered uh, wrong, right, or limited. Right? By the Constitution. But um, I'm not really familiar with Nick Fuentes, to be honest. But what I do know is what the thing is that how much censorship.
relationship do we want to allow in the United States, right? And, and that's that's a really thin line. That's a really, really, really silver line. I mean, do we want to censorship a lot? I mean, there's books that are uncensored now that in the past were considered censorship, right? They were censored by the government or censored by groups because of what they portrayed, right? One of the big famous ones that was censored in the South is, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Now we see it as, you know, what illustrated the reality of slavery in America, right? But it was censored at the time, right? It was deemed violent. I'm not saying that Mr. Fuentes is correct. I'm not saying he's going to be justified in the future. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that as we go down this, now that we have communication and we have technology and all this access to information, how much censorship are we willing to allow as a country, as legal foundations in this ever-changing technological world, right? What is considered good censorship, what is considered bad censorship? Is it just because uh, if he really did call out for violence and really move people to go to violence and started making violent activities, then yes, you can censorship or warn him or, you know, find him, whatever it is that you do to stop creating this stuff. But if he's just creating dumb ideas and just spreading dumb ideas, I know people want to say people should move away from dumb ideas and move away from those things, and yet people get attracted to it, right? People get attracted to it. And that's just human nature. The thing is that we have to be careful is that we don't want to censor too much to the point that we are defeating the same thing we're trying to defeat. Right? We want to allow free speech. We want to allow free freedom of the press. We want to allow people to be able to freely speak. But if we want to censor everything, then we're defeating that right we so much advocated as a country for the past 200 years. We're not here to say that we're defending Mr. Fuentes in terms of his content, we're defending him and any of his um, ideas and ideology because they are extreme. They are they are beyond our agreement. We don't agree with. But we do respect his ability to speak freely, right? And now when it comes to censorship, what is the line? Who gets to decide? And those defenders are being fair or not fair, and so on and so forth. And again, he says, there's been congressional hearings on Facebook on this. There's been congressional hearings on about censorship, about taking down channels, black conservatives, Latino conservatives, white conservatives, even some liberals on each other have been shut down, right? So this debate is going to continue to go on now that we have access outside the mainstream media outside the traditional news networks that we have to find out what is how much censorship is adequate right and is that going to hurt us in the long term is it because you know is it like the supreme court has voted it's the content of that are we de- are we defeating the content or are we defeating the the intent of the speech right and that's that's where we stand out that we're not defending him we just want to make sure that understand the thin line of censorship and free speech. All right. Uh, well, let's move on to the next story. So the uh, uh, in Virginia, uh, a gun control bill has failed. Uh, this gained national attention. The legislature was trying to pass an assault weapons ban that failed in the now democratically controlled legislature. What are your thoughts on that? Actually, Virginia just recently elected a full Democratic-controlled state legislature, right? The Democrats won the, the, the Virginia seats, right? They overwhelmingly won an election, their state election. They control right now the seats. Um, 
person that came in is gun control, right? The gun control has been an issue now for years. And if we go back, I mean, it's mostly been because of the school shootings, right? I think in our memory, I think the, if we can remember the first school shootings that we can remember happened in 1999 with Columbine, right? Um, there might have been school shootings in the past, but to our recollection, it's, it hasn't been as prominent from Columbine from 1999 until recently. We have had a lot of school shootings, a lot of people going to schools and shoot students and innocent lives. So that actually is, we, just, we want to stop that too. Tournament, we believe that that needs to be stopped, right? And that imagery has, has allowed a movement of restricting guns, <laughs> confiscating guns, and removing guns, right? Even though it's explicitly one of the number two rights in the Constitution in America is the right to bear arms, right? And people can interpret that and, and apply it differently and, and try to move around, but it's the right that's given to the American people back in 17, back when the country was established. Now, when the Democrats took over Virginia, right, that's the first thing they did because they wanted, they're going with the narrative of remove guns, gun control, background checks, and all that. Gun owners already go through a lot of background checks. Gun owners already go through a lot. And I will say that I am a gun owner myself, right, here in California. Okay? To get guns in California, it takes a process. In California, it takes time. It takes background check. It takes records it takes now now they're trying to do background checks even on purchasing of bullets right like every time i go in and i have to buy bullets i have to do a background check for bullets right i could be getting bullets for training purposes i, I go to the uh, shooting range and blah, blah, and shoot and practice and all that stuff i have to go to background check for that so it's already hard enough as a gun owner in um um in america there are some there are some people who go around it and that's illegal and so on and so forth. We can go to gun control thing. The thing in Virginia is that what we saw is the, the up, not, it's a march, a protest to defend the gun rights. Right? It's not even a movement. It's so So when they came up to Virginia Senate and they marched, it was the most peaceful, the most peaceful demonstration of people in the last demonstrations in this past four years. More peaceful than the women's movement, more peaceful than the gay rights movement, more peaceful for the immigration movement, more peace, more peaceful than the Black Lives Matter movement. And these men were armed. They were literally outside the state capitol with their guns, okay? with their guns, out in the open, protesting that do not remove my guns, do not pass the legislation. And it was the most peaceful, peaceful. If you can find an article where it says that violence came out of that, and, and it went highward. I would love to see that article and that reporting because I know you cannot find it. And we tried looking for it. We tried looking for things like, okay, what, what soured the, the, the protest? Nothing. And it was the most peaceful protest. The media has portrayed it as a white nationalist thing. They have portrayed it as white men trying to take over the country, white nationalism coming out to protect their guns and trying to protect them, you know, trying to hurt America. They don't care about child safety. That's false. The narrative by the mainstream media has soured the perception of the march. If you look at the local newspapers, what has been trending, the videos from people there at the marches, the people who are against the marches who were there filming the march, you can totally see for yourself that it was a peaceful, civilized march. And they were setting up to maintain their weapons. 
And because of it, of its success, the legislature killed it in committee. Killed it in committee. Can it come up again? Yes, it can. Can they tweak the legislation and try to pass it? Yes, they can. Remember, Democrats hold the majority in the Virginia uh, legislature. Right? So it can't come up again. The, 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 the organization of this uh, protest has been the most peaceful. And it's not because I'm a gun owner that I'm trying to buy something. No, it's reality. If you look at the images, if you look at what happened, the reports on it has been the most peaceful with the most, quote-unquote, rather dangerous men, right, coming out there with guns and marching with their guns out there, displaying their guns, their high-capacity firearms, and all the misrepresentations and mislabels of things around guns. That it was, it was the most peaceful. Even more peaceful than the women's march, even more peaceful than the, 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 the abortion march, even more peaceful than the Black Lives Matter march. And these men carried guns. It could have easily gone south with people shooting each other or someone dying or someone being killed. It could have gone south so bad, so easily. But these men who stood there, stood their ground with their women and had been the most peaceful protest. And the fact that the legislature listened to them shows that the legislature needs to be careful with their own citizenry in regards to this issue. Moving forward, the legislature has to be careful what they mean by red flags, define what they mean by uh, what is permissible and not permissible, because if these, guys, if these gun owners, and they weren't just black and white, there were black and Latinos in there as well, but the media won't portray that as much because they want you to think of white nationalists, right? But if you look at this, the legislature has to be careful moving forward when it comes to gun control, these, these protesters aren't against all gun control. They already have enough gun control. They're just against the policy of the state to take away your guns. The policy of the state to go to your home and remove your guns without due process. And that's what they're that's what they're against. They're not against control. They're not against keeping order in, in terms of gun ownership. They're against the state forcefully, forcefully, that was the legislation, forcefully remove guns from gun owners if they deem them to be dangerous without due process. And that, my friend, in America, regardless if you're guilty or innocent, you always have due process. And that's something the United States stands for. Uh, all right. Let's move on to the next story. Uh, so... Uh... Uh, Richard Grenell uh, is getting, uh, the U.S. ambassador to Germany is getting a promotion to acting director of national intelligence after the resignation of Joseph McGuire. Hope Hicks also returning to the White House, this time as uh, counselor to the president. What are your thoughts uh, on these uh, on these revelations? Okay, so I'll take um, Grenell and I will take Hope Hicks, so as well, though, he was a former ambassador to Germany um, and now appointed to the director of national intelligence, acting director of national intelligence. Um, and what you're seeing from the media, of course, is what's expected. A Trump loyalist appointed to director of national intelligence, um, and they're saying that he's going to destroy the intelligence community. This was on CNN. This was on the New York Times, the Post. They all basically saying this was a bad appointment. Um, because they view that the director of national intelligence should be um, nonpartisan, and when it comes to how to um, handle our intelligence communities, how to uh, report any any uh, any threats and so forth, that it should not be partisan. That is the main argument that we're seeing um, 
from Grenell. Excuse me, I said Garnell. I said Grenell. Sorry. Um, from Grenell. And it's funny. And it's funny when um, when you hear these arguments because it brought back to me um, memories of Ben Rhodes, uh, former National Security Advisor of Barack Obama. Because the main argument is that how is an ambassador from Germany uh, equipped to run the uh, our intelligence community, and I was like, how is a liberal arts major who who attempted to write books uh, deemed worthy of giving national security advice to former President Barack Obama, the guy that got us into the Iran deal? And I'm like, that's that's kind of an unfair statement. We also got to think that this is a temporary move, right? It's not a, a permanent position for Grenell. And and for for your for your listeners, you guys got to understand too that. Trump picks people that are going to move his policies. It's not loyalty. It's just the way that President Trump is. That's who he hires. People that are going to provide his positions, people who are strong enough to to um, point out those positions, and that's what he's been, Reynolds been known for doing in Germany. Um, it's politics 101. So you saw the spin comments of Reynolds, even from... Um, from German newspapers that he's vain, he's not well liked because he's he's acting like Trump. And he comes out NATO analyzed and said, "Well, you guys gotta pay more, pay more into what we do here. We just can't be the U.S. piggy banks." But comments like that. But that's something that you would hear something out of President Trump and, and his speeches in Europe, and his speeches when when he's talking to the NATO allies. He's gonna put people that are gonna push his policies, and if they don't, they're they're replaced. Um, Sessions, Bolton, anybody who starts pointing disagreement with the president automatically is going to be replaced. That's just the way this, this Trump presidency has been, and it should not be expected. Do I believe Grenell is going to destroy our intelligence community? Absolutely not. Because just, he's dealt with NATO allies. He's dealt with in Germany. He, he, he's, been there, he's been at the forefront. That's a really, uh, trouble putting somebody that, that for now can continue to push the policies that he wants as far as intelligence goes, especially with threats such as like uh, Russia, Iran, and so forth. So it's I think it's too premature to say that he's going to bring down the entire intelligence community when you have somebody like Ben Rhodes in the previous administration who uh, basically got us into the Iran deal, then lies about it, and um, um, but that pretty, pretty much, much is my thoughts on that. Uh, I may want to take over on um, I, in terms of his qualifications for the job, I have no opinion right now at the moment. I um, pretty much agree with Eddie on that. Um, one thing that we'd love to see if he gets appointed and stays in that position, um, one thing that we have to just highlight, just for the sake of highlighting, um, he would be technically the first openly gay cabinet member. So successes like this, um, whether you agree with his policy or not, should be mentioned. Especially now with the whole gay rights movement and and um, women, and that we need more people with diversity and power and in positions of office. Um, I'm just going here for the optics of um, the social aspect of it, right? That hey, is openly first openly gay cabinet member, so that should be a success for the gay LGBTQ uh, community. Whether you agree with his policies, that's a whole different thing. But that we have to give respect and. Uh, and I just want to ask before you guys go, uh, what your thoughts are on right now, 
Bernie Sanders' lead in Nevada has expanded to 36%, according to 2% 2 of precincts. What are your thoughts on that? to uh i don't want to interrupt you but uh we do have this just came in uh this is kind of a big one uh fox news is now projecting that bernie sanders will win the nevada caucus oh so, so yeah so like i said it doesn't, it doesn't yeah that's fine so like i said it wouldn't surprise me um is, is fox giving you a margin as far as who's coming in second it looks like joe biden is uh projected to come in second um uh, Bernie Sanders will easily win right now. He's 36 percentage points ahead. Joe Biden is coming in second. Uh, Tom Steyer doing uh, better than expected coming in third with 9%. Oh, wow. So he even um, outset Pete Buttigieg, which is another reason that, um, another point that validates what I said earlier, stating that Pete Buttigieg has struggled with minority of voters. Um, but this also means that you guys wanted to talk about? should be good but before you guys go do you want to tell people where you can be found for your podcast and where you can be found on social media for joining me again. Thank you for having us on. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you.
I have a six million person organization around this country, Moms to Men Action in every town. We've got background checks in 20 states, so you can do it. He was once the mayor of the largest city in America. He's been a Republican, independent, and now a Democrat. Now he's finally seeking the presidency. This is Michael Bloomberg, and this is his story. The Candidates All of you know we won the popular vote. Their story. We're not substituting one arrogant billionaire for another. I'm determined to make breaking that link a centerpiece of my presidency. And their fight for the White House. Presidential Profiles 2020. Important we share these ideals, but I believe the best way to defeat Donald Trump and deliver for the American people is to broaden and galvanize the majority that supports us on the critical issues. We have a president who thinks everything is about him, but I think the job is about you. Michael Rubin Bloomberg was born on February 14, 1942 in Boston, Massachusetts to William Henry and Charlotte Bloomberg. Bloomberg is Jewish. The Bloomberg Center at Harvard Business School is named after his father. He is of Russian descent. Growing up, Bloomberg was an Eagle Scout. After receiving his high school diploma, he attended John Hopkins University and Harvard Business School. Bloomberg went on to work at Solomon Brothers, a large investment firm. Bloomberg was eventually fired and received no severance pay. He went on to work for Innovative Market Systems or IMS and began getting paid more. He designed computers and other technologies for the company. Bloomberg amassed huge sums of wealth in the process. In 1975, he married Susan Brownlee. The two had three children together, one of which being philanthropist Georgina Bloomberg before divorcing in 1990. I'm Emily Rooney. Tonight on Greater Boston, Medford's hometown boy Michael Bloomberg, media magnate and billionaire, and he's sharing secrets. That's next on Greater Boston. Bloomberg started his own company, Bloomberg LP, in 1987, which included Bloomberg News, Bloomberg Tech, and Bloomberg Message. The company received over 325,000 subscribers worldwide. Bloomberg faced controversy when multiple female employees claimed they were sexually harassed by male employees at the company, with one woman claiming she was raped. Bloomberg himself said he'd only accept the rape charges if they came from a third-party source. Bloomberg remarried in 2000 to New York Superintendent of Banks Diana Taylor. In 2001, Bloomberg left the company as CEO to forge his first political campaign for mayor of New York City. Would a multi-billionaire like you want to stand on a street corner in the early morning, in the Bronx, and want to be mayor of this town. Why? Because it's the greatest city in the world, and the opportunity to lead it and to make a difference and to do things that everybody says can't be done is just too much to pass up. Although he had been a Democrat up to that point, Bloomberg switched parties to Republican to run. He faced only challenger in the primary, former Congressman Herman Badillo, who ran on the Republican line despite being registered as a Democrat. Bloomberg easily defeated Badillo in the primary by a 72 to 28 percent margin and faced Democratic New York City public advocate Mark Green in the general election. Though the race was close, Bloomberg likely benefited from the September 11th, 
2001 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center, as the event increased the popularity of Republic New York Governor George Pataki and then Republic New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Bloomberg narrowly beat Green by a 50 to 48 percent margin. Let me begin by saluting the leadership that Rudy Giuliani has provided over the last eight years. As mayor, Bloomberg made education reform the topic of his first term. Although Bloomberg was Republican, he took liberal positions on issues like abortion and gun control. In spite of this, Bloomberg endorsed Republican President George W. Bush's campaign for re-election in 2004. Bloomberg initially faced low approval ratings, though he eventually recovered and relapsed in popularity, leading to him beating Democratic Bronx President Fernando Ferrer, winning the election by a landslide 58 to 39 percent margin. Bloomberg supported stop and frisk, a position which opponents have largely criticized him for, and one which he has reversed his opinion on. Bloomberg made poverty the main focus of his second term. In 2007, Bloomberg switched to becoming an independent, a campaign to draft Bloomberg to run as an independent for President of the United States in 2008 was launched, though Bloomberg eventually declined to run. In spite of term limits, a new rule allowed him to seek a third term in 2009. Latest uh, threat, what do you make of it? Credible in the fact that it could happen? Although he was now an independent, the New York City Republican Party endorsed him for re-election. He faced competition from Democratic New York City controller Bill Thompson. The race came down to the wire, but Bloomberg eventually won by a narrow 51 to 46 percent margin. He came under fire in his third term for a proposed soda tax which critics called too intrusive. In 2012, Bloomberg endorsed Democratic President Barack Obama's campaign for re-election. In 2014, he retired after 12 years on the job. Bloomberg became CEO of Bloomberg LP again later that year. In 2016, Bloomberg planned to run for president as an independent, preparing an unaired campaign ad and lining up former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Michael Mullen, though Bloomberg eventually scrapped the idea of a run. Saying he feared it cow led to Republican New York businessman Donald Trump or Republican Texas Senator Ted Cruz winning the presidency. Bloomberg made headlines for endorsing Democrat Hillary Clinton's campaign for president, though her efforts were unsuccessful, loosing to Donald Trump on the Republican line. Bloomberg continued to express interest in a run, criticizing candidates of the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party such as Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. In 2018, Bloomberg became a Democrat once again. For the first time since 2001, further indicating his interest in a run. However, after the entry of former Vice President Joe Biden into the race, Bloomberg privately told Biden he wouldn't run if Biden performed well in the primary. After Biden rose to front-runner status, Bloomberg announced he wouldn't run, instead endorsing Biden for president. However, in fall of 2019, Biden saw a dip in the polls leading to Bloomberg announcing his candidacy. As a child and a Boy Scout, I was taught to believe in the promise and potential of America. And I've never been more worried about its future than I am today. 
Bloomberg ran on a moderate platform, presenting himself as the alternative to Biden and Warren. Bloomberg caught criticism for being a billionaire, as Mena tried to accuse him of buying the election. In spite of, Bloomberg announced he won't receive donations, opting instead to use his own money. Due to Bloomberg's late entry, he announced he wouldn't compete in the early primary states. Bloomberg will officially be on the ballot in Super Tuesday. Now he hopes to be America's 46th president. If elected, he'd be the oldest president at 78 years of age, and the first Jewish president in history. The day. You can't just walk in and say, I'm going to solve the problem. You have to try these things and get, get practice and understand, find what doesn't work, what does work. For more Presidential Profiles 2020, keep it right here at Politics Weekly.